Welcome to This Week with Sabir, where we serve up the hottest business topics with a side of wit and intelligence. Today's show is all about making smart decisions, and we have two of the biggest brains in the biz to help us just do, help us ju do just that. Uh, Odit Netzer, the data-driven decision-making guru, and uh, Paul Mignone, uh, the, uh, the strategic planning mastermind, have co-authored the must-read book, Decisions Over Decimals, along with Chris Frank, who unfortunately won't be joining us today. So pour yourself a cup of ambition, get comfortable, and let's dive into the fascinating world of data-driven decision-making with these brilliant business minds. And this is the, the Decisions Over Decimals book available wherever fine books are sold. So definitely go and check this out. And I think it's available on, on Amazon. Odin and Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank Sabir, you for having for inviting us. So let's get started. By the way, audience, this is my first time doing a threesome uh, split like this. This is my very first time. So <laughs> uh, gentlemen, this is my very first time doing this. So just bear with me. And, and I think we can get through this in, in a fabulous way. No worries. It, but you said that we need to bring wit to this. So wit we'll, and intelligence, both. Wit and intelligence. So we have to figure out who's going to bring what, Oded. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're in charge on both. Yeah. <laughs> So can you, uh, maybe from each one of you, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself and what inspired you to write the decisions over decimals? Paul? Well, usually we start with Oded, who tells a terrific story. Go ahead, Oded. Yeah, so, so I, the, the, the story is that really the, the, the three of us, Chris, Paul, uh, and myself, are in between academia and business, uh, or the, the academia and practice, uh, we teach together. We've been teaching together for the last for the past eight years. Uh, Chris and Paul on the front lines of um, American Express and Google. I split my time between uh, Columbia Business School and Amazon. And through these experiences, we've noticed uh, a few things that, that have led us on this path towards uh, what we call quantitative intuition and the book Decisions Over Decimals. One is that people tend to be afraid of dealing with data because they believe you need to be um, one of these you know, math whiz, top of your class in math, uh, Excel whiz in order to be able to, to do this, to deal with data. And this is a myth. There are skills needed. We call these skills quantitative intuition, and we will talk about them in the coming hour. Being top of your class in math is not one of them. The second is this pendulum shift that, that have ha has happened, which is, you know, with the arrival of, of big data, capital B, capital D, and Chris and Paul actually has written a book around this topic, uh, pretty much a day before big data became capital B, capital D. Um, you know, there was this, this maybe euphoria and belief that finally we'll make these certain decisions, these decisions that have no uncertainty to them. And again, that's a myth, of course. We now realize we still need to pour in judgment. We still need to pour in our intuition into the data. It's not the data are not important, but it needs to be combined with a good sense of judgment and intuition. And, and that's what have, has led us together to, to uh, first teach this topic and then uh, eventually to, to the book. Uh, Paul, anything you want to add on this? Sure. I just want to add uh, more on the background side. Uh, across the three of us, you have uh, two engineers, two data scientists, three leaders with different backgrounds. And that's actually the one of the compelling things where we've worked out 
uh, amongst ourselves, we've debated over and over again what makes a good decision coming from our different vantage points. And with that, um, what we talk about has a very practical edge to it. And whether we are lecturing um, new MBAs or exec ed folks that come back after you know a decade or two and want to refresh, or we're talking to companies and doing uh, private consulting engagements, there's this moment of aha, of, oh, that's what I'm missing when I'm making decisions. And some of it is just reminding people, quite honestly, to use skills that they have that they diminish. So it, it's that vantage point that I think is compelling. So um, one of the, I've been in e-commerce for 25 years now, right? I mean, I literally from the birth of e-commerce and e-commerce is a place where, where there, it's rich with data, right? But I can tell you from my experience, there's a lot, a ton of bad data. There's a lot of good data. But before we talk about the good and bad data or too much data, right? I believe that, and I think you, you stress this in your book about asking the right questions. So I, I, can you elaborate on that? I mean, I have some thoughts about, about asking the right questions is, is a good place to start. Not that you have too much data or, or wrong or bad data. Well, really, it's the, if you want to be effective and efficient, it's really the only place to start, right? If you are, if you have the, the best possible data science team and terrific decision makers, but you're solving the wrong problem, then you're just wasting company resources. And, you know, why do I care about this? Because the waste is rampant. The amount of time that we waste simply because we don't orient up front and decide what matters most, what are we truly trying to solve either today or over the next quarter or two, or you know, define the period that makes sense for the decision. But we don't do that. So we talk through techniques uh, about that in the book. Yeah, and, and the, the key here is, is we tend to start with data. We, we tend to... One of the biggest no-nos that we talk about um, in the book and, and when we, we, we talk about this topic is that we expect the data to provide both the questions and the answers. And this is a big no-no, right? As leaders, we say, let's look at the data. Maybe we'll figure out what the problem is. No, it is your responsibility as a leader to ask what is the problem. And then if you have the right data, if you have good analysts, maybe you'll find good answers to the, to the good questions that you pose. Um, and one of the approaches to go about it is, is something we call backward approach. Start with the decision at hand, not with the data, with the decision at hand, and then ask yourself, what data do I need in order to, to be able to, to answer that well-defined question? I mean, I know, Sabir, you've, you've been um, working a lot with Amazon, right? I mean, in, at Amazon, they, they call it the, 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 the backward approach over the PR FAQ, the press release. You know, the idea started with let's let's have a, a fake press release as if we just introduced the product and then back from that, what do we really need to know in order to make that decision? And just to build a little further on that, all that we said is interesting, but uh, well, I hope you, your listeners find it interesting, but what's the step that you take? So one of the techniques that we talk about is quite simple. We call it the IWIC, I wish I knew. And everyone talks about or not everyone, but many people talk about first principles, what's essential. And 
hey, let's focus on the, the, the critical problem. And then they run into a wall. They just stop right there because they don't know how to get there. So if you use a technique like I wish I knew, which is a structured workshop, uh, or as simple as just ask that question to one of your colleagues and just take a step back. And you will usually be confronted with a confused look of what kind of question is that? What is it? What do I wish I knew? Yeah. What is it that you wish you knew about this challenge that's in front of us? And wish is the key word there because it's not, what do I know? What do I want to validate that I already know? You know, what's the rat hole that's over there that's that's useless? What's really important is I want to know how my partner is compensated because that drives their motivation. I want to know why the supply chain is bogged down here where we didn't anticipate that. You start to open up and get to what's essential. And, you know, there's there's a structured way to do that uh, beyond kind of the one-on-one, -on -one, but it's those little tools that people need to build for themselves, assemble for themselves, so they have the right toolkit to, uh, to survive in today's world. And we talked about big data before. One last thought on this is um, we talk about big data, volume, variety, velocity. Yeah, except we're missing two more Vs. Verity, is the data true? And volatility, is the data going to be there tomorrow? Is it going to be there later today? Can I base a decision on it? So these are things to think about. And it's all in that phase up front when you're trying to structure where you and your team will spend their time. I mean, to kind of uh, add to the Verity statement you just made, I can tell you in e-commerce with uh, Google Analytics is a very popular tool that I'll pretty much every every e-commerce business uses, you know? Yep. And I can tell you from my experience, more than 70%, more than 70% of Google Analytics installations are wrong installations. It's bad installation. And a person like me, when, when I get involved in those kind of engagements with my client, they go like, oh yeah, we have 10 years of data. Here we go. Here, let me give you access to Google Analytics. It will tell you a lot of things. So I, I go in there and then I, uh, I immediately, uh, figure out that it, it's, um, uh, I figure out that it's bad data. So they go like, well, can you salvage some of it? No, the thing is, these are like root level data that, that, that from there, that's all the calculated values are calculated from. For example, if your visitor count is wrong, if your session count, the session duration is wrong, right? That screws with your bounce rates. So if you're depending on your bounce rate, your conversion rate is going to be wrong. So it's great that you have 10 years of data, Verity, right? It's not. It's not. It's just bad data. So how do, can we salvage? No. We have we can fix it. Going forward, you're going to be okay. But I don't know. And and some of the other things are uh, when when there's something in Google Analytics called um, uh, uh, URL exclusion or domain exclusions, right? And when you don't do that exclusion, what happens is Stripe, PayPal, Apple Pay, all of these things take over whatever the source of the traffic was. And it starts messing with, with your data. So now you have very, very bad data, a lot of it. It, it. Congratulations, you have a lot of bad data. So do you get them to change their methods and their behavior as an organization? So 
asking the right question. I mean, the thing is, they may have over 10 years made a lot of bad decisions by cutting things that they should not have cut. They may have they may have overspent on certain things or believe that, for example, a return on advertising spend may have been the right decision with certain agencies, may have been the wrong decision. That means over time, they did make a lot of bad decisions, you know, and spent a ton of money expecting that that's the norm. Right. And so what you're talking about ultimately is the need for a change. And what we've come to realize is that change is the big problem in all of this because leaders like yourself can give them the advice. But what happens when people are confronted or organizations are confronted with change? Fear is the challenge, right? Because they are afraid of making an even worse decision. They're afraid of reputational damage. They're afraid of other things. And so when that fear starts to come in, people retreat to what they're comfortable with. Some people retreat to the data side as opposed to the intuition side. So they retreat to data and they want a spreadsheet and then they want your spreadsheet. They want you to create another spreadsheet and there's never enough data. And then other people say, well, I, I can't spend so much time in the data. I have a gut feel. I think I know what's happening. And they go and they just make a gut call. And what we're talking about in, in our methodologies and our techniques is about bringing both of those together. So you have that holistic view and you balance the left side of your brain and the right side. You balance the deep data insights correctly oriented with some human judgment. And that's what we refer to as quantitative intuition. I think there is an important point, Sabir, and what, what you said, which is you interrogated this data, right? But what you needed to interrogate this data was not your, your CS background necessarily or your data science expertise. It's you looked at some of these numbers and say they don't make sense. It couldn't be that that oh, small yeah. websites get that large of, a, of traffic, right? That's what I was talking about before when I was mentioning to interrogate data. It's not about being a statistician, and that's my background. I'm, I'm coming from that background, but... Uh, um, I'm a statistician in training, but it's really about knowing the business, having the context, right? Looking at a small website and say, I don't get how these websites get as, as many visits as, as PayPal, right? It's got to be that PayPal probably going into it, right? So um, to interrogate data, what you need is you need good context and context often leaders get rather than necessarily the, the data scientist who's very fancy with their Python or p-values. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Uh, you, you actually reminded me, uh, when I look at data, in two seconds, I know. it's like it, Literally, that's how long it takes me, like two seconds. The, the, the client boasts about their bounce rate, for example, on the site, right? They go like, oh, our bounce rate is really, really good. It's like 25%, 30%. Boom, bad data. <laughs> two seconds. Like as soon as that comes out of their mouth, I know it's bad, it's bad data. They go like, what do you mean bad data? I said, I don't have to even look at your Google Analytics. I can tell you you have bad data. How? I said, the best sites, even startup sites, best case scenario, your, your bounce rate is going to be between 60 and 65% when you highly optimize your entire business. To tell me your bounce rate is 20, 30%, you're tagging certain pages twice. So you have bad data. I can tell you right now, right off the bat, in two seconds, I can tell you you have bad data. 
you know, and, and then somebody actually said, sitting there, some engineer said, sitting there, they open up the site to call like, oh my God, I just found uh, these key pages, like a homepage has two page views on, on, on a twice the tag. That's bad data. That's it. And everything you depend on it is all bad data from there, you know? Yeah. And a lot of what you're referring to there, <clears throat> we describe as kind of the coordination of, uh, competence and consciousness. So, and Oded does a beautiful job describing that. Yeah. I mean, they, they, so, so what you described right now, Sabir is, is your intuition, right? You say, I have good intuition. I look at data and I have good intuition. Now, one of the questions we are sometimes being asked is, okay, we get it. I mean, we know one, someone can teach quantitative skills. In fact, we've been taught quantitative skills since we were in kindergarten, but, uh, can you really teach people intuition? Meaning, isn't intuition something you either have or you don't, right? Um, experience helps, uh, of course, seeing a lot of these, which is uh, what I think was Sabir, what you were describing. The problem with experience, as the famous quote goes, experience is a great school, but, but the fees are high. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's great to have experience, but how do we, how do we shortcut that, right? And, and they, they, there are there are two dimensions, as, as Paul mentioned, to the theory of learning. There is a competence and consciousness. At the lowest level of learning, we are so clueless that we are unconsciously incompetent. We don't even know what we don't know. And, um, you know, then we, we may uh, tune in into uh, growth by Sabir and we hear this term quantitative intuition. Like, oh, that's interesting. It's kind of an oxymoron. Quantitative goes with intuition. I have no clue what it is but it sparked my interest. You're moving to step number two in learning, which you are becoming now uh, um, consciously incompetent. I still don't know what it is, but I'm conscious about what I don't know. As we are going through our, our podcast, uh, um, we're going to kind of cover different aspects of quantitative intuition. I'm kind of saying, okay, I get it. It's a set of tools. I need to ask good questions. Uh, Paul already told us about iWeeks. It's a tool that I'm going to use, uh, start using. I'm consciously competent I, I i know something but i need to to invest effort in doing it i haven't tried yet i weeks i i think it's interesting and i'm gonna try it as soon as, as soon as the the show ends but i i i it still takes a lot of effort think about starting to drive your car riding your bike for the first time toddler taking the first few steps at the highest level of learning we get to intuition we get to to being unconsciously competent we, we don't even need to think about it right how do we get to this we just keep doing it over and over again, right? You've seen so many of these uh, of these, these sources of data that at this point, you know exactly where to look, right? It's the repeated behavior that gets you to the level of intuition. That's how you develop your intuition. And that's what we mean by it's a Q and the I, the quantitative and the intuition and the combination of them. And the key, by the way, there is surprise. What you're looking for when you're looking at, at your data you're looking for surprises. You're looking, when I, now think about the, the, the word surprise, right? Um, by definition, the word surprise is quantitative intuition because it is, surprise happens when information, the quantitative part, doesn't match your priors, what you expected, and you, and you get a surprise. When you're looking at one of these uh, Google Analytics things, you're saying, do I see any surprise here? Do I see, do I see anything that is out of the ordinary? Now, unfortunately, this is not what many people do. What many people do is they look for the, the pattern. They look for the ordinary stuff to say, okay, everything looks fine. Let's, let's move on, right? 
I want to move on to my next task. We are in a, what Daniel Kahneman calls system one thinking, automated thinking, intuitive thinking. You, you want to look exactly for these surprises in order to, to identify either, either something very interesting or bad data or mistakes. The, the other thing that is interesting to consider in this is what level of precision even matters. So I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old. And you recognize when you start to see the education that they're getting that they locked up the first time they were asked to approximate something. And they came to me and they know daddy's the math guy in the house. And they're like, what? Because we are taught from an early age about precision. We are a deterministic society. And, and yet what we are evolving to is recognizing that a probabilistic view is good enough. Right. And so we use the words good enough and it's it's close. And there are times when that's not enough and you do want the precision in those numbers. But you walked into that room and you looked in that, that sniff test, you looked and you said, I don't need to know the exact number. We will get to the exact number at the time that we need to get to the exact number. But right now, I know we're, we're oriented the wrong way with this data set, with this problem. And do the question is, do leaders do that? Do they take that step back? And do they say, hey, we're oriented the right way? Or do they waste company resources by investigating the wrong thing and getting precision on something that is the wrong question? Yeah, so what let me just interject there a little bit. The um, Sometimes what I feel, right, in, in those kind of situations is that the leader, let's call him Let's call him or her a leader because that's a very loose term to me. <laughs> because so much ego is involved, right? It was my idea, right? It was my campaign. I am the CMO. I am the CEO. I'm the owner of the company. This idea should work, right? And then it gets, gets executed. And then the person obsesses over, not that the campaign was bad, or, or the parameters were not set properly, they worry about their ego. Then it's more about the campaign was about their ego, not about the product or widget that they were trying to sell. Right, there's the reputational risk of not matching the bias that the leader inserted at the wrong time. The leader inserted, this is where we need to go without even having the parameters laid out. Leaders should speak last, not first. And should constantly ask what surprised me, right? As opposed to, you know, one of the, the again, the things we quote in the, in the book is, um, you know, he uses statistics like a drunken man uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And leaders often tend to make decisions, then look, then look for data that supports whatever they want, they, they, they're, where they're headed to. Thinking about, again, you mentioned in the start, I mean, the key is asking questions, right? The question, what surprises me? What surprises me in that situation helps switching from that mindset of I'm only looking for what supports. In fact, I'm looking for the opposite. I'm looking for, is there anything here that goes against what I'm, what I'm actually thinking? 
And that's where we should spend our time investigating further, looking if it's maybe something super interesting or maybe a mistake, but looking where what, what's what's unique about it. And and this notion that, that, that Paul mentioned, this guesstimating is another way to build intuition, right? We don't do it enough. Because again, from very young age, we are taught that, uh, and, and, and we're taught that, that math should be precise. Math is, is the one place in school where things are very precise. And luckily, indeed, as Paul mentioned, I've had similar experience with my kids. I think this is changing a little bit from the way we, we, we learned when we went to school. 298 times 31. Do I need to really calculate that? Or is 6,000 good enough? There are very few decisions in life where the difference between the very quick method I've done between 298 times 31 to get to 6,000 is different from actually doing the, 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 the task that would take me now a minute and a half to, to calculate actually how much is exactly 298 times 31. Our kids are actually starting to learn that I'm, and I'm very proud of the schools that are, are taking this route. I'm not sure we've taken it yet in our businesses and in, our, in the way we operate. When I get a spreadsheet that, that, that tells me forecast for next year, and I get three digits after the decimal. I send it back. I'm like, this is a forecast for for next year. You know things at the level of at best ten thousand. Why are you giving me decimals? It's 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 not just wrong. It's actually misleading, right? You give me the false sense of accuracy for something you know that you're not accurate about. How important is that thirty-two cents in that in that financial report? That's talking yeah. about four and a half million dollars. <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's a false sense of accuracy, which we know is not. I mean, even historical data is not is not accurate down to the, the decimals because of inputs and so on, right? Let alone forecast data, right? I mean, in, in any organization, if you look at different functions of the organization, right? Marketing versus operations versus accounting versus finance, right? Those four organizations, if, you, if they're even talking about the same thing, they will have four different numbers. Those four numbers are not going to match in any way because everybody will have their own perspective. No, no, no. If it's four organizations, they'll have like eight or 12 numbers. Exactly. Right. And, and, and so this is why the exercise that we said before, the IWIC, ask it broadly. What is it I wish I knew about this problem? Go ask the marketing organization, operations, and customer success and product. And then bring all that together and say, oh, what we really should be solving for is the following. And one of so, my iWix is why the marketing data are different than the operation data. Yeah. So let, let's talk about, Paul, you mentioned uh, the, the infamous room, right? Let's, let's take everybody to the room, right? In any corporate America, right? Yeah. And that room is typically you have the CMO in that room, right? And you have some somebody with the title of VP, right? That reports into that into that uh, CMO who wants to be very impressive at all times, the loudest person in the room. And then you have um, data scientists there, people who do their Facebook marketing and Shopify people and Amazon people and brand strategists and stuff like that. But that VP is the loudest person in there. And, and the goal of this meeting in this infamous room, which happens every day, every hour of the day in corporate America, is to brainstorm the next campaign, right? So you talk about this in your book, right? What is, what is your approach to that room? How it should be structured? How the conversation should be structured? Well, so I, I, I want to push on something you just said. 
the the purpose of the room is to structure the next campaign. Yep. It's a war room, right? The purpose of the room is to get someone's agenda across, and it might be to interrogate the heck out of your campaign and kill your campaign. So the loud person that's asking all the questions, we refer to him or her as Billy Numbers. There's never enough numbers for Billy Numbers. And Billy Numbers will run you down to exhaustion unless you take a step back and you say, listen, I've got the numbers that you need, but let's focus on what's critical here. So the whole point of that room should be to make a good decision. And a good leader doesn't have the answers. A good leader asks the best questions and then brings everybody together. The room rarely feels like a safe space, does it? Mm. It feels like, you know, a little gladiatorial combat where everybody's got to get their point across as opposed to true collaboration. So before you get in the room, you know, like any, like any good battle, uh, before you get in the room, you should know what's going to happen coming out of the room, right? You need to have the conversations with all the constituents, all the stakeholders beforehand to orchestrate a good discussion. And that means they needed to be involved early on in the requirements in the IWIC. They needed to be involved early on in pulling the right data sets and then pressure testing it and saying, you know, this data looks okay, but it, my intuition tells me customers don't buy like that. And what the data doesn't tell us is that the headline that just came over the past few weeks, the headlines that we've seen are changing the business a particular way. What numbers would have told us COVID's coming? No numbers. Yeah. None. <laughs> none. None. By the way, what numbers actually tell us that a recession is hitting, isn't hitting, is about to hit? What What are those numbers? Where are they? So it's someone's intuition that has to say, I know my business. This is a cohesive leadership team in this room. And we understand whether we can weather the storm that's out there of if there is a recession coming and whether we can press through or whether we have to pull back. But what we kind of see over and over again in corporate America is just follow the leader behavior, right? People kind of revert to the mean and say, well, I'm going to do what everybody else does. So where's the courage? Yeah, and I think another aspect of the, this, this room that you described, right? We have meetings over meetings over meetings discuss, discussing the what. What's in the data? What do we agree about the data? What we don't agree about the data? Kind of the, the, the aspect that, that, that you raised earlier, Sabir, about the, the, the problem here and problem there. Uh, in fact, there is another persona that we talk about uh, in the book uh, related to the what. We call them the Seymours in the room. Every room has a bunch of Seymours. You, you recognize the Seymours very fast. The Seymours are the, in the room are the ones that have only one comment in, in every discussion. I want to see more data. We can, we can postpone every decision to infinity just by, by keep asking for more and more data, right? Our business here is not to get perfect data. Our business here is to make decisions. How do we avoid the Seymours? How do we go around the Seymours to say, at some point, we move from the what to the so what? What does this whole thing mean for us? And the now what? What are we going to do about it? And in order to do that, sometimes, by the way, it needs to be as literal as putting a, actually a, a timer into the meeting and, you know, 
45, 45 minutes into the, the hour meeting. We disagree about a lot of things. We have the data scientists here. They're going to work on things for our next meeting. But I want to dedicate the last 15 minutes of the meeting to so what? What does it mean? Or to the now what? Is there anything we need to do differently? The change that Paul talked about uh, earlier on that we need um, to do about it. Uh, by having, for example, iWeeks and exploring a lot of the what's before the meetings, for example, by sharing the data and say, everybody post any comments you have, we're going to dedicate the meeting to actually talking about the, the, the so what and now what you can expedite some of these uh, processes. The other point I maybe want to touch on that you mentioned, Sabir, is the data scientists in the room. First, this is fairly new, meaning data scientists did not used to have a seat in the table. But it also means that if data scientists have a seat in the table, it needs to be a different training and type of data scientist because it needs to be what, what we call actually the, the data translators. It's not just someone who's very skilled in Python and all of the recent machine learning tools, but actually can speak the business, can understand the context in which all of these tools are, are being used. Uh, so, for example, at Columbia Business School now, we have business analytics as part of the core. As part of the core class at, at Columbia Business School, business analytics, every student needs to know the, 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 the basics of machine learning and business analytics. The goal is not for, for these MBAs to be data scientists, but to be the data translators, to be the ones who, who can sit in the table with data scientists and bring things to the, 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 the decision making in the organization. We have now hundreds of our MBAs choosing an elective in Python. If you told me that, Five years ago, I would tell you, out of your mind. You're going to have an elective on Python in an MBA program. 60 students who are coming from CS background will take it, and nobody else, right? The reality is that, that, that more and more MBAs realize they're going to sit in a table with the, the, the data scientists. And again, they don't need to program themselves. In fact, our goal is not to teach them the, the, that they need to, to know how to program. Our goal is to pass the myth that I started today's uh, discussion with, the myth of Unless I'm, I'm a CS background, I shouldn't be touching anything related to data science. No, you, you learn the confidence now that you can, right? Because you took this class in business school and now you realize with a little bit of investigation, I, I can get there. You know, it's like 50 years ago of somebody saying that, oh, I'm not going to learn a calculator um, because I think that's for physicists or engineers or something like that. Nowadays, I think computers uh, are like fancy calculators. You have to know whether you are a, you're working in a biology lab or pharmaceutical, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be computer science. You should know how to use those kind of things. And, and it's inherently in the tool like Excel or Google Sheets or anything like that, you will be touching those things. You should at least know how to do an average, you know, how to sum up the column. Those are the very basics, but you could get fancier by writing macros or writing, uh, you know, R programs or, you know, uh, you know, Python scripts and stuff like that in order to analyze or at least, you know, know that what question to ask, you know, from the programmer. If you have enough budget for a programmer, go ahead. At least you should know how, what to ask, not just completely put all of your eggs in their basket and say that, oh, well, you're an intelligent programmer. You go figure it out and tell me what you see. But right. that person may not have the background to give you that context, you know. You know, there's a, an interesting McKinsey study. Uh, I think it came out about eight years ago or something to that effect um, that said by 2018, there would be a shortage of um, 
was it 1.2 million ODED? 1.2 million data scientists. But beyond that, there would be an even larger shortage. If you think about it, there's an even larger shortage of people who know how to manage those people. And it's exactly what you said. I'm an engineer by training. I don't have to write the code. I work for one of the most highly developed software development companies on the planet. I don't have to write the code. I need to know what to do with it. And I need to have an intelligent conversation about where this can go and not that I need to get buried in, you know, writing in, in, in C or Python or creating the next large language model. We have people that'll do that. Where do you approach that? But that implies that I have an understanding. We have a common understanding across the two. And Odette, I think we see that with the, the folks that we're trying to teach at Columbia and other terrific institutions. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the idea is that, that we have trained. So, so again, if you, if you go back in time, kind of to, to the early 2010s, there was this big cry out around STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. We're going to have a shortage of these really smart kids that we're going to infuse into the market and going to help all these companies as we are moving beyond the, you know, the Googles and the Amazon and start to see data science in, in B2B, in human resource and so on. We'll need a lot of smart kids that, that know what to do with computers, right? And, and you know, we, we did a lot. We did a lot in terms of schools, all the way from high school, bringing STEM all the way to high school, to college, to data science program. Just at Columbia, we have something like four different data science programs just within Columbia University. We, we are feeding the, this pipeline of, of data scientists and, and analysts and so on to the organizations. But what we failed to do, and this is what, what Paul was mentioning, what we failed to do is actually train the current leaders that are going to live now in a world with lots of data sciences, science come from the, 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 the front line of these businesses who need to make decisions with this. And that's exactly one of the reasons you ask us, why did we write the book? This was one of our biggest drivers to write the book to say, we need to educate the leaders, not about what is Python and what is this machine on the other, but how do we interrogate things? How do we ask right questions? How do we make decisions with all of this inflow of, of information? And it's, again, it's not about knowing the, 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 the most recent language model or the most recent machine learning model. It's about asking good questions. So one, one thing that um, I was thinking about that room, right? Uh, we're thinking that it's, it's uh, many different types of people, but three of us come from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different geographies. We just happen to be, I think all of us are in the tri-state area right now, in the New York area, Connecticut and so on, right? But we come from different backgrounds and each one of us, you know, we talked about intuition, but intuition also is coupled with biases, right? And also not only biases, cultural biases, gender biases, uh, experiential biases that we have had, like the, the deep scars I have on my back because of 15 different experiences I've had running companies, right? I, I, rely, on, I rely on that in order to make certain decisions also. That's part of the intuition. But also, there is also racial biases and other gender-based biases and other uh, types of opinions also that are part of your intuition that you think is the norm, right? So when you going back into that room, how important is diversity uh, in that group that, you know, you talked about STEM. One of the biggest uh, benefits of STEM was focusing on women uh, to, to take on science courses and physics and become a physicist, become a computer scientist. 
I was a computer scientist at Queens College. I can tell you it started with 500 students taking the first course. By the time we were at the 300 level courses, which is year three, right? There were six students in the class, one girl, one girl, one woman, five guys. And then, and that was the graduating class basically. But that was, that was in the nineties. Now uh, I'm not as young as, as, as I look, by the way, right? That was a long time ago. So now, now when we are uh, talking about, like when you see, um, you know, the diversity at Google and Amazon and when you look at the engineers and especially with STEM, you see more women uh, involved in that. And I think that di diversity in that room, whether it was writing programs or looking at insights or intuition or, or reports or any kind of even targeting certain types of uh, demographics uh, was represented a little bit better, I think over the past, I would say five to 10 years, if, if, if the company took that on, you know? So how important is like, given everything I just said, especially with diversity yeah i think this is a, a great point and, and i think a few 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 thoughts around these uh first the, the again as, as paul mentioned we have in our team of three authors we have two data scientists two engineers very much rooted in data and yet a lot of what you hear from us is bringing in the judgment and the intuition by no means we mean to say dismiss the data right i mean we are very much rooted in the data that's why it's quantitative intuition. It's the combination of, of, of the, the, the data and the intuition. Data does help with, with facing, with, with contrasting your intuition with, with facts, right? So by, by first combining your intuition with data, you may identify some of your biases. You may identify that, that, that things are, are um, biased in the way you look at, at, at the world. The importance of diversity, and I think this is this is crucial, right? And diversity in the most general sense of the world, of the word, right? Having diverse teams, again, think about quantitative and intuition. Data, unless it's it's fake, is is factual, is 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 true, and all of us see about the same thing in the data. What we are different uh, about is our intuition. We have different intuitions. The 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 more diverse your team the more likely you are to contrast different intuitions and question each other's intuition. So if, if, if I'm the only one looking at the data, I may be actually biased in my intuition of, of, of how, how I contrast my intuition with the data. If I have five people in the team with just different intuition, it comes from, from maybe more of the traditional way of thinking about intuition, which is, you know, could be gender, race, ethnicity, and so on, but could be just the finance person versus the marketing person looking at the same data. Any any diversity that you bring to a team, and again, in the most general sense of diversity, helps with bringing different intuitions to looking at the data. And another uh, um, bias killer question is the question we talked about earlier, what surprised you? The more you ask yourself, what is surprising to me in the data, the more you are contrasting your intuition with, the, with it and ask yourself, am I, am I actually biased here? Meaning, is a surprise coming because my intuition is wrong because my intuition may be, may be biased. Yeah, and I think it's very important to really be as thoughtful as possible on the team that you're working with and ensuring there's the right diversity and ensuring that there's enough space for the right conversation, which is why we love a question like, what surprised you? It creates, a good leader creates the space for that kind of conversation. But here's a little pop quiz for you. Is the I is the um, Supreme Court diverse? Is the U.S. Supreme Court diverse? 
From age standpoint, I would say no. Everybody yeah. seems to be very old. <laughs> I mean, th there is male versus female. Uh, if you think about a race uh, split, you you do have some. Mm -hmm. There's some 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 there, not not total, yeah. right? That, it's not representative of U.S. population, definitely. You know, eight of the nine went to Ivy League schools. Oh yeah! Wow. Right. So my point in that is to not get go off on a tangent on the Supreme Court, but everybody's aware of the Supreme Court. So think about that. The the diversity, the balance also depends on your viewpoint. So it depends on your viewpoint of your customer, of your industry, of what problem you're trying to solve. In this particular problem, maybe I need a different mix than, you know, a different part of my business. So it's an ever refreshing discussion to have to make sure that you've got the right balance. With my clients, I, I feel in most of my job is trying to tell my clients not to do something, <laughs> you, know? you know, being like, if I, if I were to compare myself to a family, I would be the mom trying to tell, tell the kids not to go close to the stove because it's too hot and they're going to burn their fingers, you know, precious little fingers. Right. It right. feels like that way. From your experience, can you share an example of where, um, you know, a, a, somebody may have made a decision, a regrettable decision that would have been very costly, uh, that that uh, it was better to, from, from the inside they got, they learned what not to do, not necessarily what to do. Like we have been talking about campaigns. Those are all the things you want to do, right? But the reverse of it, it's like, no, don't do that, you know, because you're going to, you're going to burn through your budget. You're, you're going to kill the organization. We have to have massive layoffs because of this one mistake, you know? Sure. I, I think there's there's mistakes that we can all recognize. I'll give you an example away from e-commerce, if I may. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I was involved in, um, it was practically an acquisition integration activity. It was leading towards that. Uh, or an acquisition activity, and I was doing due diligence uh, for a large Fortune 50 company with a startup that was heavily backed in Silicon Valley. Well, things looked too good to be true, but they looked good. And then by asking a lot of the techniques, now this goes back 20 years, by going through a lot of the techniques that we've talked about today, and at the time we didn't necessarily have the, the structure of quantitative intuition, but you start pushing at the things that were surprising or you didn't have a good answer for. And what we discovered was that the startup actually had a poison pill, which would have gutted the entire investment we would have put in it. Wow. And let's put aside why that was happening but everything looked beautiful the story held together and there was something that spoke to some of us in the back of our minds that said there's something that doesn't seem completely authentic about this and the reason i bring up that story is because the data scientist in the group who we revere data scientists are fantastic but those who just spend time there have less of a sense of the business than the business line leader. And so when you look at, when you listen to VCs, for example, say, 
who they invest in. They invest in the people, not necessarily the technology always, because they want to know that the people have a good sense to pull out of a tailspin, to avoid the tailspin, to navigate the things that are unknown today and certainly unknown tomorrow. So that ability is what we should be nurturing, what we should be looking for. It is someone who has, uh, as you hear journalists say sometimes, that leader has a feel for the business. Well, what does that mean? You have a feel for retail and for e-commerce. You just, it, it's, it's in you. And so the quantitative and the intuition is in you when it comes to that. But how do we build more people that have that balanced view? That's really an interesting question and what we try and solve for. And a canonical example of, of what you were asking, Sabir, is the, the, the new Coke example, right? I mean, dates back to, to 1985. Um, lots of data and analysis went into it. Millions of dollars in marketing research, right? This is back in 1985 where, for the younger audience, I guess, in the, in the, among the listeners, where Coke decided to... Um, Pepsi was pushing Coke hard on, on, on blind taste tests, showing that people prefer... Coke, Pepsi over Coke. They prefer the taste in blind taste test of, of Pepsi over Coke. And that's drove the leaders at, at Coke crazy because they've conducted their own blind taste test and they found that it's true. It's true that people did prefer the taste <laughs> of Pepsi over Coke. And of course, you lose sleep at night over this if you are a leader at Coke, right? So what they did is they they, they called the code red in the company. They, they said, well, we got to find, go to the R&D team find a flavor that is better than Pepsi because people apparently when they when they test blindfold a uh, test the the, the the colors they prefer Pepsi and they went into the into the the R&D team and did find a better taste they found the, the what it, what is known as the new, what was known as the new new coke a, a better flavor and indeed they ran their own taste test people did prefer new coke over the classic coke over Pepsi and they went with a big splash, introduced this new um, classic Coke. Again, after a lot, a lot of market research and data going into it. And it, it, there were literally riots in the street. People went out of the street and said, bring back the classic Coke, right? And it, it, it goes back to where we started. They asked the wrong question. The question they asked was, what, what is the flavor people prefer when they're blindfolded? We don't go to the supermarket blindfolded. We go with the eyes wide open, with all of our experience of and, and generations that have drank this classic Coke flavor, right? And that's how we appreciate what we drink. We don't appreciate what we drink, pretending as if we don't know what we drink, right? And, and they they simply asked the wrong question. They were they were pulled by the wrong thread of what do people prefer with them when they're blindfolded, right? If you want a very recent example for this. I mean, I thought that the introduction of the new language models, right, and ChatGPT and so on, was a really great uh, um, introduction. What was pulled wrong from it was, should we jump tomorrow and just plug them into Bing and Google search engines? Not yet, right? I think that the, the language model itself is great. We don't necessarily need to go there. We don't necessarily need immediately. I mean, once we, we, we get to the stage where we are ready with the technology, we can jump into search. But as a language model that is just creating more of a human-like language, that was that was a big improvement. So, so more of a recent maybe um, example of this. 
You know, I, I think that's a very critical question. Should we do it? it should, there should be somebody in the room that says, does this make sense for us to actually do, right? Because uh, most people start marching just because somebody said it makes sense. It's such a great idea. You know, if you remember one of those commercials says, you know, the guys, one person says it, everybody ignores it. But the second person says it, but the guy does this with their with their hand. I don't know if you remember that commercial. When they do that, then all of a sudden everybody goes like, oh, that's a great idea. Go like the other person says, oh, I I said that, but but you didn't do this. <laughs> Paul has a great story about it, about how to start a movement. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a great TED talk. It's about six minutes long. It's a it's a funny video about you know kids dancing and uh, the first person gets up. So I won't take credit for it. It's somebody else's TED Talk, but go look it up, how to start a movement. First kid gets up dancing, and that's the lone nut. It's not a movement until the second person gets up, who's the fast follower, and then the next cohort, and then the next cohort. So the question is, how do you build a tribe? How do you build a, a movement within these organizations and back on, I, I can't resist back on the, the generative AI and the LLM, um, the large language model question. Think about the question you just asked, should we use this? Isn't the better question, what should we use it for? Right? Should we use this as a closed question? And <laughs> someone, because it's the shiny new object is going to say yes, and they're going to jam it into probably the wrong engagement model for the population at large, as opposed to saying, listen, search and creative tools like generative models are actually two different things. And there is a Venn diagram where some of it may overlap, but they're not equal and one will not replace the other. One will never replace the other. So what should we use it for? What are the creative ways to use it and not make it a binary yes, no. So a good leader would take a step back and not go for the land grab, but be thoughtful about, well, where can we go with this? So I, I think um, going into the, let's go back to the room, right? The data scientist is sitting there, go like Mr. or Miss uh, data scientist, could you tell us what you see? Uh, the data scientist says, oh, uh, from our data, we see that, by the way, these are all made up facts. I want to put a disclaimer on it. I'm not endorsing anything here. I'm just using a very bad example, right? It says, oh, um, people who drive XYZ brand of car get into uh, accidents 44% of the time, um, while people who smoke cigarettes uh, only die of uh, tobacco-related diseases uh, only 22% of the time. So it's pretty healthy to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Right? The reason I'm sharing that example is a very bad example, right? The reason I'm sharing that is uh, I think as human beings, we become, for whatever reason, we become very comfortable when somebody starts uh, citing facts like percentages that are seem very precise, 22%, 43%, 43 43.5%. Oh, did you said in the very beginning, 43.578%, you know, because they wanted to have a lot of resolution in that, right? What makes it, how can we build up, because we are trying to educate also the audience, right? How do we build up our questioning skills? The, the three of us are from New York, and 
uh, one thing that we that's actually built in our system that uh, most of the United States doesn't have, or maybe even the rest of the world, it's a special meter. It's called bullshit meter. You know, we have it in the, in us. When, if you grew up here, you have it in you. So as soon as you hear bullshit, you go like bullshit. You know, that's that's not right. So I, I think growing up in New York, I built a lot of my skill set because of it. You know. Uh, but how do you build your skill set, and not just for the leader, but for your entire team, so that you're asking the right, you're questioning the right things? Like you corrected my question earlier to say, wouldn't it be better if this was the situation, this was the question rather than that question? And I love good questions, you know. So how do we build our questioning skills? So every single person, every single person that confuses causation with correlation ends up dying. Um so uh, um but uh, uh, around around your, your question about this sparked by your 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 correlations right one of the mistakes that we do is we summarize information as opposed to synthesize uh, that, that particularly data scientists do right they look at a table and what they do is they simply just reflect back to us what we already can see in the, in the table you know people who do that do that people who do that yeah i can see that in the data what we need is we need to, to pour in judgment into it. And that's the process of synthesizing information where I don't just look at the table and, and, re, and repeat the facts. Again, you're not being hired in order to repeat facts that I can see, but pour in judgment and then question these judgments. Because one of the reasons why people stop often at summarizing and not synthesizing is because it, it requires some judgment and judgment is by definition uncertain. We feel uncomfortable because I don't know if this is true. In fact, it may be just a correlation and not a causation. Put all of the, the, the disclaimer there, but let's have a discussion if it is about smoking. What else could have caused, you know, this, this type of, of a reaction from the correlation that we are maybe observing in the data? Uh, speaking of the language models, we played kind of a nice game with, uh, with ChatGPT. We entered one of our exercises that we teach students where we, we bring in a table. And, and again... When we start the session, students uh, uh, sometimes just repeat to us, they summarize the information. As we progress, we're explaining what summary is. They tell us not only what's in the table, but, but the so what and now what. What does it mean and what should the company do about it? We plug this table into ChatGPT and said, what do you think? What's happening here? The machine was very good in summarizing. In fact, it created a very nice narrative around this is what's happening in the, in the data. What it couldn't do yet, and, and maybe, you know, We'll have a different discussion three, four years from now when, when machines will get to that level is synthesized information is pouring in the judgment. So really the, the value that we bring as, as leaders, even as, a, as, a, as, as data scientists who are maybe on, on the path towards leaders is pouring in the judgment into it. And we have to do it in a careful way, in a way we talked about before in terms of avoiding bias and diverse point of view, but bringing up the, these a possible explanations for what what the data really means paul um i i think what we need to ensure people adopt is the overall framework right so when we talk about what we're bringing people along to do it's this blend of precision questioning and the contextual analysis and the synthesis. And it's kind of tragic that there's not very much of that that's happening. 
Um, there are individual pockets of that. And what that screams to us is that there's not the skills out there appropriately, but there's also not the teamwork. So decision-making is a team sport. Think about any emergency room. You don't know what's coming through the door. You may not even know the doctor or nurse that's on call standing next to you, but you know how to navigate in the moment. Mm. Does that happen in a meeting? Does that happen in a boardroom? No, because we don't communicate enough and recognize that this is a team sport where we're, we're passing back and forth. The other thing that we like to say is that decision-making is not a waterfall. It's jazz, right? You're going to start down a theme. Someone will pick it up and evolve it a little yeah. bit, then revert back. And as you go back and forth, collectively, the ensemble moves and progresses forward. Right now, everybody's, most organizations have people that are operating too independently and not connectedly. And that's, that needs to be solved. So, I mean, this, this episode has been extremely rich. So I'm going to make it even richer now, right? From each one of you, uh, starting with you, Odin, right? And then Paul, right? What is your number one? I usually ask for a hundred thousand, but I think this room is pretty rich. So $1 million expert insight into decisions over decimals. So as soon as you walk into that into that infamous room, well, what what is that quantitative intuition uh, that they you know the audience could use tomorrow uh, when they walk in, or preferably today, you know, later today, uh, that they can walk in and and uh, you know really be very effective in their organization. I think it was probably the theme of of, of today's uh, um, you know session was focus on questions, focus on problems as opposed to solutions. We we spend way too much time thinking about solutions and not enough time thinking about the problem. Keep asking questions, keep interrogating both the, the, the start of the process, what is the problem we are, we are facing, the data, and are we on the right path, path towards the solution? Don't jump straight into solution mode. I would say that um, you're walking into that room and what are you doing? Why are you there? Remember, you are in the room for a reason. You should be in that room. It's not imposter syndrome. And so let's have your voice come forward. What are you really thinking? Bring that forward with the techniques that we talked about. Talk about the IWIC. Talk about what surprised you. With respect, not disruptive to the meeting, say, listen, here is something that I think we should interrogate. Here's something that I think we don't understand yet, but we need to think about more and have that discussion. Be confident in that and ensure that your organization has that confidence and creates that space. And if you're struggling with that, find a co-collaborator, find a co-conspirator, find a coach that can help to ensure that moving forward, that room has the space for that open conversation. Odin, Paul, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so for having us. And thank you, audience, for tuning in uh, to this episode of This Week with Sabir. 
we could not have, I'm, I'm saying this honestly and, and uh, from my heart, we could not have asked for better guests to share their insights and expertise on this important topic of data insights and decision making. And, uh, and again, I love my audience. Thank you for tuning in and, and uh, uh, listening to our, our guests share their knowledge and expertise. Remember that knowledge is power and we'll soon see you on another episode of This Week with Severe. Bye for now.